The following program may contain language that is explicit, and by explicit, I mean implicitly naughty words. It's Wednesday, November 4th, 2020. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. And in the news today, well, the big story, Lewiston, Maine officials still looking for the man who set a porta potty on fire. And in Oregon, the Clackamas County Sheriff's Office notified of an armed robbery, a witness reporting the suspect pulled a gun on an Ace Hardware employee, then fled in a dark-colored Mazda with a sofa strapped to the top. The sofa-sporting Mazda then led police on a high-speed chase. Well, as high a speed as you can attain while sporting a love seat. That's pretty much the news from yesterday, Tuesday, October 4th. Um, Want to get out of here early? Oh, yeah, one more thing, and it's this. It's that the porta potty arsonist was spotted carrying a Save-A-Lot plastic bag containing two boxes of cereal. That, according to WGME Channel 2. All right, let's close up early. I mean, that's pretty much it, right? Oh, wait, this just in. There was an election. In fact, several elections. Some results... Susan Collins, still a senator. Tom Tillis, still a senator. David Perdue, still a senator. And then there was a presidential race, which is being contested, shall we say. So on the show today, I wanted to do what I always do, what I always try to do, provide useful information to you. This is a service. Perhaps the useful information will be wrapped in a pun or surrounded by news of porta potty arsonists or loveseat-hindered pursuit and evasion tactics. But I am mindful of the fact that the thing you want to know and the thing I want to know cannot be known now and cannot be discerned by listening to this show. How's Nevada, Pennsylvania, Georgia, maybe even Arizona? How are those states going to develop? So what I will do is let me slice off a couple other angles that are relevant. They're not wasting your time, maybe things you haven't thought of. And then I will, uh, in the spiel, play a segment of media that's very important that maybe you couldn't bring yourself to watch. So first, here in this space, I would like to note that if you are a progressive, reform-minded person, perhaps of a Democrat or liberal ilk, I'm sure you are thrilled today because yesterday was a rebuke, a flat-out rebuke of the role of money in politics. Jamie Harrison lost after raising $57 million. Sarah Gideon lost after raising $39 million. Plus, North Carolina's Cal Cunningham and Georgia's John Ossoff, both of them had quadrupled the amount of money their opponents made, and they all lost. Way to go. Take that, fat cats and money and politics, because that's what we always wanted, right? Countering the role of cash, emphasizing the will of the people. You see what I'm saying, don't you? I mean, let's also be clear. The Democrats who did win, Mark Kelly of Arizona, Hickenlooper of Colorado, they outraised their opponents actually by not as much or the same percentages or multiples as the other candidates who lost, who I mentioned. The money has shifted to the Democrats. Most importantly, the way to raise the money has shifted and it didn't matter. In fact, since most of the money that campaigns take in still go to spending on advertising, especially TV commercials. I'm beginning to think, and this is a little bit based on personal experience and not, you know, empirically proven, but I'm beginning to think that it might be true that the more money you have to spend on ads, after a certain point, the more it hurts you. So many ads that after a while, voters on, say, Staten Island or the people who are living in TV markets adjacent to Staten Island, 
might not be saying what they should be saying, which is, oh, Max Rose, he's a sprightly young fellow. He was a soldier. He works hard for me as my congressman. People might be saying, just shut up. You are so annoying. I need you to shut up. Maybe just a theory. But we've never had a greater ability to advertise than these Democrats had. And the results were never more disappointing. Huge underperformance. I also have similar thoughts about gerrymandering. Gerrymandering is bad. It suppresses the vote and democracy. And it's not a good thing. But I do think it has been a little bit overblown as an explanation for Republican strength. Right? Although Senate losses, you can't gerrymander a state, can't gerrymander a country. Yeah, Electoral College tries. But, you know, look at Iowa. Iowa is the ideal state in terms of congressional districts drawn by neutral experts reflecting the will of the people. 2018, Iowa's four seats had three Dems, one Republican. 2020, the exact opposite ratio. It's not about gerrymandering. Dems in Pennsylvania had great success in 2018. Gerrymander reform was cited as a big reason. But... They seem to have taken it on the chin. And I say seem because vote is still coming in. But those redrawn districts didn't serve to just funnel them right back to Congress. A big problem with our democracy is that many, many of our fellow citizens just have misguided beliefs about the effectiveness of President Trump or to be charitable, different values and policy preferences than I think they should have. You probably agree with me in general. But the job is to convince them to have a different point of view. The job isn't, it shouldn't mostly be to reform the system and then we sit back and watch the winds just roll in. Popular sentiment is fractured, it's sometimes incoherent, and it's frustrating that public opinion is to a large extent aligned with backwards thinking. But you know what? As frustrating as it is, it's also an opportunity. On the show today, I spiel about something that you may not have been monitoring, but what an expert told us two weeks ago was a key to democracy. How is Fox News covering election night? I have been watching. But first, Democrats are predicted to hold the House, but they might not even add to their advantage. And the Senate does seem out of reach. What went wrong? Did having a sexual relationship with a woman who wasn't your wife actually hurt and not help Cal Cunningham? The polls said, no, it was fine. Was a 33-year-old Ivy League-educated Jewish media executive not the right candidate to run statewide in Georgia, especially after he lost a house race three years ago? Or, and let's not be snide here, because, you know, John Ossoff's a fine speaker and candidate and thinker. Maybe he's just not right for Georgia right now. But to not be snide, if you look at some of these members of Congress, Abby Finkenauer, Kendra Horn, and maybe even most especially Lauren Underwood, who right now trails by 895 votes, I think these people were pretty good at their jobs. They didn't underperform for the people who hired them in 2018. Maybe the job description changed without them realizing it. Maybe the hiring committee wasn't the same as it was two years ago. So we'll get into it with Slate's Jim Newell, senior politics writer, up next. We're joined now by a man who I think has gotten an hour and a half sleep in the last day, but maybe you have too. Jim Newell is senior politics writer for Slate. He covers so many branches of the federal government. Jim, thanks for coming on. Glad to be here. So we're going to get to the presidential election, but everyone's getting to the presidential election. I'm looking at different House races, and it was forecast early that the Democrats would hold the House. That was known. And it was even forecast, oh, they'll gain some seats. I don't know how much that's true. Are the Democrats going to gain seats in the House, do you think? 
I think we're going to have to wait to see everything come in because we're going to have to especially wait on a lot of California districts where they could be counting mail ballots for weeks to, to see what the ultimate margin is. But, you know, I, I'm not sure there's been a single Republican incumbent knocked off as we're talking right now, whereas Democrats have lost, I don't know, six or seven right now. I mean, they lost two right off the bat in uh, South Florida with the huge underperformance of Miami-Dade. Uh, a couple of their other really long shot seats that they picked up in 2018 in Oklahoma City, uh, South Carolina, Southern New Mexico, Eastern Iowa. I mean, those are gone. Colin Peterson, who was, I would say, the most endangered Democrat, he covers um, a huge swath of Western Minnesota. Uh, he's losing comfortably by about 13 points that race has been called. So I think in the uh, end... Uh, uncomfortably for him, but yes, I know. Yeah, it's, it's, quite, I, for him it, it's quite uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I, I think in the end, we could see Republicans pick up a few seats. I don't know for sure. It is far from the, you know, five to 15 point pickup that, that Democrats were expecting for themselves. And I think they're they're pretty pissed about that. I mean, well, they, I can actually, actually, we should say, ahead. though, they, I mean, they will still hold the majority, but it's, it's really a, a big underperformance. Yeah, they had a good cushion. And I wonder why different races, different answers. You know, in Arizona, the Democrats did really well on every facet of the ballot. But if you look at Pennsylvania, um, we're talking about seats like the one that uh, Connor Lamb won to a lot of attention. There's vote left to be counted, but last I looked, he was down in the teens. So what I'm saying with that is that in different races, there are different issues. But should we look at it like many of these races that were won by Democrats um, in Iowa, Abby Finkenauer, Connor Lamb, maybe even Lauren Underwood in Illinois, should we look at it like, well, you know, in an election that swings back to Republicans, the seats that you're going to lose or the swing seats that maybe you picked up last time, or should we look at it a different way, that it is a big disappointment because what did the Democrat incumbents even in those swing seats really did wrong? What did they do wrong to, to piss off voters? I can't explain it. I mean, it's strange because the message that they won on in 2018 was healthcare. We're going to protect your healthcare. Republicans want to take it away. And they, I mean, they truly tried to emphasize that message this time too. I mean, Senate Democrats in the Amy Coney Barrett hearings, you know, they made that entire thing about healthcare. Like they thought this was the winning strategy and it just appears to look a lot more like, you know, 2016. I think it's it just having Trump at the top of the ticket brought out a lot of voters who didn't show up in 2018. And so, you know, some of these races just look completely different. Yeah. I was looking at the races that Cook rated as likely Democrat, and they lost a couple of those and are trailing, and the vote will come in in cases or is extremely close, but it wasn't underperformance. And then I looked at the uh, races rated toss up, and these were almost all. Democrat losses, Kendra Horn in Oklahoma, as you mentioned, Torres Small in New Mexico, Abby Finkenauer, as I said. I mean, things, couple Arizona races, but things did not break their way at all. And, you know, you point to maybe the message was off, but I would think maybe it has something to do with campaigning and COVID and the fact that COVID prevented Democrats from getting out there more than it prevented Republicans who kind of campaigned into the teeth of COVID. Yeah, I'm trying to figure out, I mean, there's gonna be a lot to dissect here about why Democrats so underperformed. I think that maybe, um, you know, I don't know if they, if they underestimated frustration with lockdowns or I don't know if it was really just they didn't have enough boots on the ground. I mean, not being, you know, kind of taking Miami-Dade for 
granted, while Republicans were there trying to register new voters and knocking doors for, for months ahead of Democrats, I mean, that probably did work to their advantage. There still were some areas where the pickups that they made in 2018 seemed to hold. Like if you look at the Georgia suburban districts, Lucy McBath, who flipped that district uh, just outside of Atlanta, she's probably going to win by around 10 when it's all counted. Um, Carolyn Bordeaux, uh, looks like she has a good chance of flipping the, the district right next to it in suburban Atlanta. She's up by three now, and I think it's mostly Democratic votes that are outstanding. So the ones that were really just ancestral Republican you know, suburban areas, those ones are holding pretty well. But where there's a lot of rural vote outstanding, it seems like those were the ones that really – really went. Or if you look at South Florida, where there was you know, a big Republican improvement among Hispanic voters and Cuban Americans, that seems to be the trend. Right. Donna Shalala ran against a Cuban American television journalist and uh, she lost. It was, a, it was a big upset. And that seat, I didn't even see too many ratings regarding that seat is particularly in play. No, the, um, I mean, the, the South Florida district right Next to her, the one that um, covers the, the bottom tip of Florida and through the Keys, that was Debbie McCarcel Powell's district. And that one was known to be pretty competitive, although Democrats felt like, you know, they had, they had turned it around there in the end. But yeah, Shalala seemed to really come out of nowhere. And I think that when, when you're in the mindset that you can't, you know, at worst in Miami-Dade, you'll lose or you'll win by 20 points, and then you win by whatever it is now, seven or eight points. I mean, that's a shocker. I mean, that was a, I can't remember, like, just a a bigger miss in a huge county like that before than we saw in in Miami-Dade last night. Yeah, all of the Republican success there came down to a well-executed strategy. I mean, you hear a story about, you hear tales of Cuban-Americans saying that they can't even log on to WhatsApp because they're just inundated with ads. Right. But in ways that maybe escape the notice of, um, you know, English-speaking or non-Spanish-speaking or non-Cuban community-attuned reporters, you know, they, the Republicans, did so much outreach into Cuban media and Cuban influencers, it seems to really have paid off. Yeah, and I think Democrats were were aware of that. You know, Marcarcel Powell herself, I think she and Joaquin Castro in Texas, another place where Democrats underperformed with Hispanic voters, they wrote a letter to, you know, the FBI asking to look into misinformation on WhatsApp and other social media issues. So they knew this was going on, but I don't think that the extent of what was going around in social media and in some, you know, Spanish language media uh, about you know, Democrats was really quite appreciated. So when Democrats had great success in 2018, there was a certain formula for the uh, kind of candidate who could swing a district. Often uh, politically moderate military experience was very important. A lot of those candidates lost. Was it that Democrats got it right in 2018 and just kept uh, sticking to the old playbook? Or were they fielding candidates? Were they fighting the last war often with literal warriors? It's hard to really say. I mean, they they definitely got into this habit in 2018 of fielding challenges. Like you said, you needed two of the three, like military, CIA, and lawyer <laughs> or prosecutor, you know? That was yeah. kind of the formula they went with. I mean, looking at the Senate side, North Carolina, I think Cal Cunningham maybe had all three, or maybe he just had military and, and uh, law, you know? But um, he's not going to come up. But then a fair, a fair, a fair. A was, was the wild one. card, third card yeah. that he was holding. You know, it's hard to say that Democrats made, by going down that path of trying to find those kind of 
acceptable moderates with these impeccable national security credentials that, that they made a mistake, you know, keeping up with that recruits. I mean, maybe if they had gone a different path, they would have just lost by more. I mean, you can see the left can't really say a whole lot here because if you look at uh, Nebraska's second district, um, which is Omaha area, and one where Biden's going to pick up the single electoral vote, uh, Don Bacon, who's the incumbent Republican, still beat Kara Eastman, who is a, a progressive favorite. So that's a you know an underperformance when Democrats went with a little bit more of a, a progressive. So, well, Eastman also got the gist bump. He was on the show, and that that always helps. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I think I think Democrats probably made good recruits, but they just a lot of them just couldn't keep up with the fundamentals. Gotcha. Well, let's talk about the Senate. I cited the Cook Report on their House races. As I looked at their races of toss-ups, every single Republican won, with the possible exception of Kelly Loeffler, that'll go to a runoff. And even one uh, Democrat, lean Democrat incumbent, Gary Peters, right now is losing, and that seems to be close. So it's a similar story in the Senate as the House, big Democrat underperformance. Yeah, it looks like, depending on how Michigan turns out, that Democrats are either going to net one seat pickup or it's going to be a net wash. And that is just, it's so wildly off from what forecasts we're expecting. And this is something where I, I want to figure out if Democratic pollsters knew that it was actually this close in their own models and just weren't telling anyone because they didn't want to panic, or if their models were as completely wrong as all the public polling was. Because this is like I mean, this is like a seven or eight point miss in district polling and a lot of state polling. I mean, it's really quite bad. And it's really, you know, Democrats could still come out of this defeating Donald Trump, which is goal number one here. But it seems like they're really having trouble correctly measuring public opinion right now. And that, that, mm-hmm. I mean, that's a big problem for the party. Okay, and that affects expectations and people from afar. But if you're Gary Peters, like, how would you do differently? You should campaign as hard as you campaign. I mean, maybe you could talk about the pouring resources in from a national level. But resources seem to have almost an inverse proportion to success. All these candidates setting fundraising record just going down left and right. Harrison, Greenfield, looks like Gideon raising much more money than a Republican opponent did nothing for so many Democrats this election. Yeah, I, Harrison, he raised 57 or $59 million in the third quarter, which broke the quarterly Senate fundraising record by $20 million. And he is, at the moment, let me just pull up the, the Senate count right now, he is losing by 14%. What's his so, total vote count right now as we speak? Yeah, he has 973,000 votes. All right, so that's, you know, that's something like 60 bucks a voter. <laughs> right. So that's I mean, there's a good return on investment. There's billions kind of going down the drain here. So I yeah, there was just a lot of money tossed on this Senate elections and I guess, you know, people are going to be disappointed that that's, you know, not working on Democrats' favor, but um I guess it's maybe a little bit heartening that so much of this money in politics isn't the defining factor of of determining who wins. Mhm. Michigan, really interesting because John James is a African-American Republican. And if we look at most of the exit polling, so I want to ask you how much stock you put into that. But there was, at least on the presidential level, a Trump improvement from 2016 with especially the male African-American vote. And now you have a male African-American Republican 
running in Michigan. And he's a pretty good candidate. I've seen him campaign. He definitely seems to have more energy than Gary Peters. He has a good biography. But that might be the case of a quintessentially right candidate at the right time that the Democrats didn't see coming. I, I think Democrats knew he was coming and took him seriously. He was yeah. definitely, he was, he, I mean, he was absolutely. He ran against Stabenow strong last time, pretty strong. Right. And, and they knew that Gary Peters, who's, you know, kind of anonymous <laughs> within the Senate, was, was going to be a pretty weak incumbent. What we're seeing in Michigan is it looks like John James is outperforming Trump on the ticket by like, you know, a percent or so. And that could make really all the difference. I knew this race was close, but I figured if, Biden was going to win Michigan by five to eight points. Ha ha, you know, he's going to win it maybe by 1% or so. Then we'd pretty much see Gary Peters, you know, riding Biden's coattails here and matching the top of the ticket. But it's so close now that it's just that little separation that James made for himself could make the difference for him. Right. If Joe Biden does indeed win and he doesn't have the Senate, it's a Republican controlled Senate, that will definitely uh, hem his sails. But the fact that it wasn't a landslide election, the fact that if he does win, maybe it'll just be by whatever, 20 votes. I don't know. Maybe it'll be more. Does that actually do anything? Does that have anything to say about what his or the Democrats agenda can be? If it's Biden and a Republican Senate, then I, you know, they could look at another stimulus package, probably narrower than the deal that Pelosi was negotiating with the administration ahead of the election. But then after that, like, I don't know what they do. Maybe you have some dynamic. There are going to be some Republicans who are up for uh, re-election 2022 year. It's going to be a lot of conservative uh, defenses again. So maybe there will be some who will want to work with Democrats on, on some fixes to the ACA or something. But I, I think the overriding political imperative is for McConnell is just going to be, you know, make Joe Biden an ineffective president and then, you know, win after, after four years. You know, nothing on climate change is going is to get done. Healthcare may be something tiny. Um, what, else, what else were Democrats talking about doing? I, I, immigration, I don't, I don't really see anything happening there. I've heard theorizing that a Republican-controlled Senate is actually what Joe Biden wants or what he should want, because all his headaches seem to be, oh, what am I going to do about the filibuster? Even though it's not his call, he's going to support or not. What do I do about court packing? All off the table. Any big swing is off the table. So now all he could do is man is, you know, try to manage relationships and get along with Republicans like Mitch, which he has, which he likes doing. We saw Republicans pick up in state legislatures last night, and we're going to have the census count come in and redistricting come up. And a lot of these states where they were losing some of these uh, suburban districts are going to redraw those maps to make them more favorable for Republicans. So I think that the House is going to be still be a problem just because of redistricting for Democrats, even if there's no unified Democratic government to sort of spend a lot of capital that gets them into trouble. Yeah. Last thought, did Mississippi pick the right flag? Yeah, they well, they picked the, the flower one, right? The magnolia? Yeah, yeah. yeah, that was the right flag. What do you think? Hey, let's end with that silver lining, huh? Yeah, I mean, it's a good flag. It's a good flag. Jim Newell covers politics for Slate. Thanks, Jim. All right, thanks, Mike. And now the spiel. The entire Fox News election crew broadcast from New Jersey, not New York City, last night. 
Were they fearful of being cut off from the mainland by a Trump caravan clogging the bridges and tunnels? Mm -hmm. Were they trying to evade the jurisdiction of the SDNY? Or maybe, and this was the official explanation, from New Jersey, you get prettier shots of the New York City skyline. That's plausible insofar as it concedes that the only benefit of being in New Jersey is looking at New York. But I have a different theory. Maybe the election team and the decision desk, which makes the calls of which states go to which candidates, was seeking to separate themselves from the rest of the Fox family, if only to ensconce themselves in a setting where random Hannity producers won't buttonhole them in a hallway on their way to shopping poorly sourced stories to the New York Post. You use the Hudson as a moat and you keep the forces of MAGA at bay. They're good at boating, you know. Now, to remind you of why this was a needed tactic, perhaps, here is CNN's Brian Stelter on the gist a couple weeks ago during our Calling It series. And he was making the point that Fox News has historically played it straight on Election Day by sequestering their news side from their opinion hosts. Well, Hannity wasn't on last night, a good sign, but there was some participation by at least one primetime host, Most people, Tucker even Democrats, Carlson. are conservative, small C conservative, and they fear radical change. So this is like a pretty good country, actually, despite its faults. Do you really want to tamper with the formula to overthrow the system? The actual content of Carlson's argument was well within the bounds of acceptable discourse, well within the bounds. A little earlier, Maria Bartiromo was on, the Fox Business Channel. Now, she wasn't one of those Fox opinion hosts that Stelter told us to worry about. But judging from her performance over there on Fox Business in the last few weeks, uh, there is much to be cautious about when Maria Bartiromo says something. She's been engaged in an effort to mainstream propagandistic stories about the election. It's been pretty troubling. But last night, here's how they used her. Here's some of what she said. The message of the market has Donald Trump in the lead, because I think that the only way this market continues this tremendous rally that we saw today and yesterday is if the Republicans hold on to the Senate in a Joe Biden win. I mean, I think the only way the markets rally in a Joe Biden win scenario is if the Republicans hold on to the Senate, making it impossible for him to get through his tax increases. Now, I would take issue with uh, the content there. Definitely, I take issue with the certainty. But there's an opinion in keeping with the message that Fox News would like its viewers to understand. It's not an inherently destabilizing sentiment about the fundamental fairness of the system itself. So throughout the night, that's essentially what went on. Quite a few Foxian expressions of pro-Trump sentiment, sometimes by Brit Hume, hired for the express purpose of expressing such sentiment, but often rebutted by Chris Wallace, hired to play it straight. The anchors seem no more to be subtly rooting for a particular outcome on Fox than the anchors on MSNBC seem to be subtly rooting for their own outcome. And maybe, if you're a discerning viewer, neither was so subtle. Very reassuring were the appearances by Darren Shaw, who is part of the Fox News Decision Desk, but also teaches at the University of Texas and has polled political races professionally. At times, the Fox Decision Desk would call a state and the host would want explanations. Sometimes explanations based on the fact that, well, this is a very troubling concern if you are invested in Donald Trump winning re-election. Why, for instance, had the Fox News decision desk led by Arnon Mishkin called Arizona for Biden? Darren Shaw was asked, and here's his answer. 
the estimates we've heard from the White House, and we have heard them, is that uh, you know the president needs to get about 61 percent out of the remaining vote. Uh, we think that's right. That, that, that estimate is actually pretty consistent with what we're seeing. However, our estimates are that he's online to get about 44, 45 percent out of the remaining vote, which leaves him well short of what he needs. And so when Arnon talks about 100 uh, percent confidence, you know, I think our standard is a one in 400 uh, probability that the call will be wrong. And we've actually raised that in this instance to, I think, about one in 1,200. Fox knows who its voters are. They know voters won't be necessarily happy when a swing state goes to Biden. So they explain it as one would to a reasonable partisan. And reason generally reigned, thankfully, throughout the night. But it would be tested because Fox's biggest star would soon take to its airwaves. Millions and millions of people voted for us tonight. And... uh, A very sad group of people is trying to disenfranchise that group of people, and we won't stand for it. We will not stand for it. After the president's remarks, Brett Baer voiced agreement with Trump on his relaying of the count as it stood then. His numbers are accurate. He is up 600,000 votes in Pennsylvania. The other numbers that he cited in these other states are accurate as well. He is up there as well. Then Bear asked Chris Wallace, well, what do you think? Uh, this is a, an extremely flammable situation, and the president just threw a match into it. Uh, he, he hasn't won these states. Nobody is saying he's won the states. The states haven't said that he's won. Uh, you know, this goes right back to what Joe Biden said, which is the president doesn't get to say that he's won states. Uh, you know, the American people get to say it, and the state officials get to declare it. Exactly right. And Fox let it stand. That's heartening. In fact, as Ben Mathis Lilly wrote in Slate a couple months ago, the Fox News decision desk controls the fate of American democracy. Trump can't use the Supreme Court to cheat in overtime if he loses in regulation. All right, perhaps a dramatic headline, but you know, you got to grab those web surfers. But it's right. Ben's right. And Fox is playing its role as we needed it to. And a thought hit me about all this. So a friend texted me after Trump's remarks and he noted, oh, he gets he gets to say anything he wants. And yeah, that's kind of the lesson of this entire four years. I'd argue it's a big theme of the election and why people voted about him getting to say what he wants. But what he gets to do, that's another matter. So while always being mindful of the fact that the president's words have meaning and the president's words have power, and among the power of those words are the power to shatter norms and to embarrass some of us or thrill some of us or offend some of us, they are, for the most part, just words. And you don't want to give them too much power. If all the president has are his words, but nothing beyond his words to bend reality to his words, then he can't hurt us. Not so much. We'll get by. Yes, it is extremely important to rebut his lies and to the Democrats should definitely mount uh, robust defenses in court, of course, and we all have to keep our eye on the ball. But last night, he uttered words. And right now, they're still just words. Think of them as eggs that haven't hatched. And right now, there is no clear mechanism to turn his words into deeds. And right now, his main method of transmogrification, the main incubator of those potentially dangerous eggs, that main incubator is not assisting him in his effort. 
So of this situation that in so many ways is so bad, I do think we can say so far so good. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist, and he can now call Arizona from his cell phone. Roaming charges may apply. Margaret Kelly produces The Gist. She regrets that on a normal day, we could go with such titles as Salazar Shalak Shalala, Bice Mutes Horn, Bloom Off the Rose, or Parnell Leads, Lamb to Slaughter. There's a comma in there. It works. Maybe it works better on the page. They'd all be fine headlines. Drive a lot of traffic. So not normal times. Alicia Montgomery, executive producer of Slate Podcast, has a nose for news. She wonders what kind of cereal was in the plastic bags near the blazing porta potty. Could be a clue. Get on that. The gist. And for my final thought, I am now joined by my junior associate with me until two in the morning, monitoring results. How you doing, Mila? Thank you, thank you. I mean, I am getting pretty hungry, so I think tonight I'm going to have some salad from Pennsylvania for dinner. A Pennsylvania salad? Why is it a Pennsylvania salad? It's a toss-up. <laughs> Oomperu, depperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.